0: This morning, I want to share with you uh, out of the book of John, and in specific, draw your attention to four chapters in the book of John that in many ways kind of typify and personify the ministry of Christ in a unique fashion. The four chapters, 14, 15, 16, and 17, are referred to by theologians as the upper room discourse. Let me set the scene for you. Jesus is with the 12 disciples. They have gathered in the upper room. Passover is about to begin in a few days. Soon, these disciples will see Jesus betrayed, arrested, and crucified. Knowing that their time is short, they lean in for a final time to hear the teachings of the one that they have followed for the last three and a half years. And as the master begins to teach, John gives us behind the scenes exclusive access to what he says. In the context of four chapters, Jesus shares some of the most profound and transformational truths that the world has ever heard. And John memorializes them in the gospel that he writes that is now read by all of the world for all of time. Jesus says things like this in the upper room discourse. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me also. He who believes in me, the works that I will do, he will do, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father on his behalf. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man come to the Father except through me. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. I for you and if I go to prepare a place I will come back you with me, that you may be where I am. If you love me, keep my commands. Greater love hath none other than this, than a man lay down one's life for his friends. I no longer call you servants. I call you friends because friends know the master's business. If the world hates you, keep in mind they hated me first. In this world, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. No longer is he speaking in code. No longer are the disciples confused or or unaware of that which awaits them on the horizon. The arbitrator of the new covenant is about to reconcile all of humanity unto himself on the cross. And these are some of the final teachings that Jesus will share with those whom he loves. And right in the middle of dinner with his disciples, Jesus breaks into a story about a garden. And that's where we find ourselves today. In John 15, starting in verse 1, Jesus says this I am the true vine. I am not a vine. I am not one of many vines. I am not just the newest, the latest, and the greatest vine. I am not the best-looking vine. I am not the smoothest-sounding vine. I am the true vine. And my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. There are three main characters, all being introduced in the first two verses of John 15. And each of them play an important role in the teaching of Christ to his disciples in the upper room. Jesus is the true vine. The Father is the true gardener. And we are the true branches. But Jesus isn't just any type of vine, he is the true vine, and there is no reason for scripture to tell us Jesus is the true vine, if there aren't some fake vines that Jesus is contrasting himself against. Now when Jesus said these words to his disciples, it was not just a poetic analogy. It was not just a a fancy illustration. For if you lived in the time in which Jesus walked the earth and you were to hear these words, automatically your mind would be drawn to a scene that you have witnessed many times. Watch. At the entrance to the temple in Jerusalem in the first century, the columns at the front doors were wrapped, watch, in an ornate golden vine. In Jewish culture and literature, the vine represented the house of Israel. It represented their heritage, their history, their nation state, and their ethnicity. When pilgrims would come to worship, often they would purchase a leaf or a berry, and the priests would then attach them to this golden vine in an sign of sacrifice when Jesus tells the disciples in John 15 I am the true vine make no mistake about it they knew exactly what type of shot he was taken Jesus is positioning himself in direct opposition to the religious tyrants of his day. Jesus is declaring relationship with God is not brokered by the fake vine of the law. Relationship with God is not brokered by the fake vine of sacrifices and ceremonies. Jesus says, I am the true source of your fruitfulness. I am the true strength of your connection. I am the true wellspring of your life. And relationship with the Father is only made possible by the life giving power of His one and only Son. It wasn't that Jesus was against temple worship. What Christ was redefining was the avenue by which people understood their relationship with Yahweh. It was no longer shadows and symbols. It was no longer rules and regulations. It was no longer feasts and festivals. Jesus is the vine that all of humanity has been so desperately longing for, and he alone can give you new life. See? We got a lot of fake vines masquerading as true vines in our culture today. Religion, it's a fake vine. Cultural acceptance is a fake vine. Political correctness is a fake vine. Self-indulgence is a fake vine. Pornography is a fake vine. Substance abuse is a fake vine. Maybe the worst thing about a fake vine is it looks like it could produce fruit. It sounds like it could produce fruit. It might feel like it could produce fruit, but no matter how much gold there is on the outside, it's still dead as a doornail on the inside. For it don't matter how ornate the tombstone is, all it holds is dead men's bones. And here's the reality friend, you can't reproduce what you haven't first experienced. Meaning this, the fake won't ever produce the real. If you've never had life, you can't reproduce life. If you never had joy, you can't reproduce joy. If you never had peace, you can't reproduce peace. But if you would become engrafted to the vine of Jesus Christ, just watch the type of fruit that could come from your life. When Maria and I got engaged, we went to the jewelry store together. I told Maria, I said, you can pick out any ring that you want. But as we were looking, the salesman drew my attention to a deal I could not ignore. A deal called cubic zirconia. I told Maria, what a bargain. Now we broke... (laughs) And sometimes when you're filled with faith, you'll say things you don't really mean. Pick out any ring you want, as long as it's on the dollar menu. Pick out whatever jewelry you want, as long as they got layaway for the next 40 years. And as we was looking at the rings, I kept trying to draw her attention to the bargain bin. I said, but look at these, Maria. We could get 10 carats for 100 bucks. It'd be the best ring you ever saw. You'd have arthritis in your wrist just from wearing this thing. It'd be so great. Ain't nobody would know the difference. You get the biggest ring your heart desires. It looks like a diamond. It shines like a diamond. It has the appearance of a diamond. The only thing that's different is that it's grown in a lab. Maria said... No. I said, come on, Buzz. (laughs) Why? She told me this, I'll never forget it. She said, when times get tough, and they will, I wanna know that this relationship cost you something. I want you to look at this ring every day and realize it was months of hard work to pay this thing off. I want you to remember the sacrifice that it took. I want you to remember the ouch that you felt when you drained the bank account to pay for this ring. I want this relationship to cost you something. And friend, a faith that costs you nothing, produces a relationship with God that will get you nowhere. When times get tough, you want a relationship with god that is costly not cheap you want something authentic not manufactured not grown in a religious lab not constructed in a cultural cauldron you want something that will stand the test of time the only way to develop lasting fruit is to be connected to watch what Jesus says my father is the gardener and he cuts off every branch that is in me that bears no fruit frankly I find this shocking and I think you should too Jesus says there are branches in me there are branches in me they're connected to me that have lost their ability to bear fruit and the gardener who is my father has come to cut them off would you agree this morning there wasn't a better pastor than jesus there wasn't a better preacher than jesus there wasn't a better leader than jesus there wasn't a better miracle worker than jesus and see judas heard all of jesus's sermons he saw all of Jesus' miracles. He witnessed all of Judas's Jesus's interactions. Judas saw Peter walk on water. Judas saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Judas saw the leper cleanse, the demonized set free, and the lame walk. And yet being around Jesus wasn't enough because the same Judas who had a front row seat to the ministry of Christ himself would be the same Judas who would betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and how many times have I betrayed Christ for even less see friend it's one thing to be entertained by Christ it's another thing to be crucified with Christ it's one thing to be educated in your mind it's an entire other thing to be born again in your spirit Judas was a branch that the gardener had to cut off because when Judas ceased to bear fruit it wasn't because the vine didn't try it's because the branch wouldn't posture himself to receive I am terrified that there are some who will witness the miracles week after week at this altar they will hear the message of the gospel proclaimed week after week from this podium and yet they will go home the same because their hearts have hardened against the vine of Jesus Christ. Proximity is not the same thing as intimacy, and the only way that you get lasting fruit is to be engrafted into the living vine. My fear is that sometimes as branches, we so easily forget the purpose for why we exist. No, the branch doesn't exist as some sort of disembodied, free-floating stick. The branch exists to be a life-giving extension of what the vine already carries. I'm a branch and so are you. And branches cannot produce fruit on their own, for instead we merely bear what the vine naturally produces. And that's why the scripture says, you will know them by their fruit and the scriptures continue every branch that does bear fruit he prunes why so it can be even more fruitful in the future hear me friend pruning isn't the punishment pruning is the reward God prunes what is fruitful in your current season, that abundance may overtake you in the next season. is the cutting back of what is in order for God to release what's next a tree that is unpruned never reaches its full potential and a Christian that is unpruned never achieves their full destiny if we were honest we want fruit we want harvest we want blessings we want resources and it is hard to trust God because no matter how beneficial pruning is to the tree of our lives it doesn't feel good when it's happening. I was watching my two year old attempt to get a haircut the other day and he screamed like someone was stabbing him with the scissors. The only difference between a two year old and a terrorist is you can negotiate with a terrorist. And as I'm watching him react and be foolish and throw a fit and a tantrum, scared to death that somebody is cutting his hair, I felt like the Lord spoke to me and said, Russell, how many times do you respond like this to me when I'm trying to prune things out of your life? When I'm trying to cut some stuff back, not to harm you or hurt you, but ultimately to help you. How many times are you holding on to stuff from the last season that I've asked you to let go of so I can trust you with the abundance and the resource for the season that is to come? Oh, it's easy to laugh at somebody else's tantrum until the Lord reminds you of how often we act like that when we're submitted under his mighty hand. I'm telling you, he's got a plan to prosper you, not to harm you, but to help you, to cause the dream and the desire of God in your life to come alive in a more beneficial way than you have ever considered before, but until you submit to the gardening shears of his pruning power, you won't realize the full potential that God placed in your heart while he formed you in your mother's womb. Pruning isn't punishment. It's the reward of being fruitful. Now, speaking of things that are unpleasant, last week I was preparing to go to Vegas with Lighty to preach at a conference, and a few hours before my plane took off, my, my back molar split in half. Split so bad that the nerve ending was exposed. I had to rush to the dentist. They did half a root canal and a temporary filling, and I got on the plane to preach, came back into town, preached here on Sunday, and then had a follow-up appointment with the dentist this week. That follow-up appointment was to finish the root canal and install a crown on my tooth. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm already resistant to going to the dentist. Number one, because every time I'm at the dentist, the spirit of lying comes on me. <laughs> When's the last time you floss your teeth? I said, oh, you were there about a year ago this time. <laughs> they got all these drills and all these machines and... I don't know why it is whenever you're in the dental chair, you got your mouth open, a dental dam placed in, all sorts of tubes and things going in and out of your mouth. It's always then that the dentists want to strike up a conversation. What do you do for a living? You're drooling like a demoniac. It's just all, you know. Now halfway through the procedure, they drilling on my tooth to finish the root canal. And all of a sudden, as they were drilling, I heard something break. And lo and behold, they stopped the procedure. They sat me up, they, they, they did another x-ray, and they discovered that the drill bit had broken off deep in the canal of my tooth. You can see it there. So if I'm talking a little funny, acting a little funny, It's because I got a drill bit bugging the nerve of my tooth lodged in the canal of my molar. Now, here's what I wanted them to do. I told them, I said, just seal it up, call it good, put a crown on this thing, let's forget it ever happened. As long as I don't have to see it, it won't be an issue. But here's the problem. With the drill bit stuck in the canal of my tooth, the medicine can't get in. The infection can't be cleared. And ultimately, it'll destroy the tooth from the inside out. So the doc told me, he said, Russ, we gotta do surgery to remove this root. We've gotta take out this branch of your molar. And if we are successful at cutting out and cutting back, this tooth can survive because its health will return see friend it would be easier just to put a crown on your accomplishments and call it good it would be easier to say look at my life look at my business look at my church we've made it so let's never change let's never risk let's never prune But I am convinced that there is more fruit that waits on the other side of our embracing of God's pruning. And friend, fruit is what we were created to produce. Did not God prune Gideon's army from 32,000 to 300? defeat the Midianites and the Amalekites? Did not God prune Joseph's life before Joseph found himself as an advisor in Pharaoh's court? In fact, when you study scripture, don't you see the pattern of pruning in just about every story you read? What if I told you, if you allowed God to prune a small portion of your finances, you would have more than enough for every need, want, and desire. It's called tithing, I dare you to try it. What if I told you if you allowed God to prune a small portion of your busy schedule, you would have more than enough time and energy for every yet-to-be-completed task? It's called Sabbath. I dare you to try it. And when you submit to, instead of run from, the pruning of God's Spirit, you have passed the only necessary test in order for increase to come in your direction. Now watch what Jesus says in verse three. He says, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me. One translation says, remain in me and I in you. For the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. For I am the vine, you are the branches, and he who abides or remains in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can only have a small ministry. For without me, you can only have a medium-sized business. For without me, you can only have a kind of okay, put-together family. For without me, you can do nothing. So often, we become overly impressed with our skill set and we under-realize the game-changing power of God's Spirit, which takes residence inside of our souls. No, without God, I'm not just a lesser talented version of the preacher you see on Sunday morning without god i'm not just a less skillful communicator than you might have witnessed on our social media pages without god i am nothing i can do nothing without god i am still in the miry clay dead in my trespasses but see in the West because of our wealth and our technology and our culture and our political systems, we become convinced that we can be great without God. And isn't it amazing how many great things that we have built that are void of his spirit? And I'm telling you, when the fire of his judgment comes, wood, hay, and stubble will be burned up, but gold, silver, and precious gems will be refined. And we wanna be those who are refined in the fire. So you better store up your treasure in a place where moth and rust does not destroy, where robbers cannot break in and steal it. You better invest in heavenly things because you've got a heavenly king who lives Inside of you, friend, without God, we are nothing. Amen. And here's the secret if you would abide, that word abide or remain is the same word used in John one thirty three, When Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist and the scriptures say, the spirit descended and remained on him. That word abide in the Greek translates to this understanding, watch, to be constantly present. To continually operate in his divine influence and energy, to persevere, to endure, to stay in a place of expectancy. If, friend, this might be the hardest discipline of the Christian life. Because if abiding was easy, everyone would do it. And Jesus wouldn't have had to spend so much time encouraging his disciples to engage in it. Everything in this world is designed to get you to give up. Give up on your faith. Give up on your dreams. Give up on your family. Give up on your church. Give up on your hope. Give up on this region. And oftentimes following Jesus looks like fighting all of hell, disciplining your emotions, submitting your offenses, forsaking your preferences to stay in the place that he has called you because you understand that the mandate to bear fruit can't happen if you don't stay connected to the vine which gives you life. I must stay expectant. I must stay connected. I must stay present. I must persevere and endure because the formation of my soul hangs in the balance of my decision to abide in him. And in order to abound in Christ, you must first abide in Christ. Jesus says the mandate is to bear fruit. Hear me. Fruit is not your talent. Fruit is not your skill set. Fruit is not your performance. Fruit is not your anointing. Fruit is not your spiritual gift test. Fruit is the character of your life being shaped by the nearness of Christ is what you do but fruit is who you are becoming when Jesus tells the disciples that my plan for you is that you would bear fruit and that your fruit would remain he's not talking about how many souls would get saved on Pentecost he is not talking about how many miracles would be done in Philippi. He is not talking about how many churches would get planted in Asia Minor. He is pleading with these disciples, if you would abide in me, if you would be partakers of the divine nature, if you would dwell and remain in close relationship with me, then by osmosis and by your intentional connection, you're gonna look like the one that you worship more and more day by day until one day you see him face to face. When we bear fruit, we are talking about the inner development of our character, our life, our will, our volition, our emotions, until we are framed in the image of the one we serve. And you know the difference between a fruit and a vegetable? A fruit has seeds, but a vegetable don't. See, I'm convinced that when you abide in Christ, that by virtue of that conscious decision, what God develops inside of you are seeds for the planting in the soil of the sphere of influence that you occupy. So that what Christ has done in you through your influence could be multiplied in the lives of others. And that's why Paul tells Timothy, Follow me as I follow Christ. I'm reminded of that old comic, the pastor standing before his congregation at the pulpit. He says, who wants change? Everybody raises their hand. Who wants to change? And everybody folds their arms. I believe that in order for this church, our community, our individual lives, your family to reach their full God given potential, we've got to embrace the gardening shears of the Father above. That we would trust Him to prune back what appears to be so successful that in doing so, God could multiply this work beyond anything that we have ever asked, thought, or imagined. For if we abide in him and he in us, we will bear fruit that remains. Come on, would you stand with me as we...